0: So I'd like to um, return to our saint, who is the patroness of these classes so far, these spiritual conferences, uh, St. Philomena. And this is looking at the life, the life of Pope Pius IX. Um, you might remem- remember his name is Blessed Pope Pius IX. The year was about 2000 when um, Pope John Paul II declared that two popes were going to be declared, declared Blessed. They were Pope John Twenty Third and Pope Pius IX. So you know how we traditionalists are. We heard that Pope John the Twenty Third. he's the one who called the Second Vatican Council and said, let's mix, mix the church with the world. And before we got all up in arms about it, they said, but don't worry, we're also beatifying Pope Pius IX. He's the champion of orthodoxy in the Catholic Church from the 19th century. So I guess we were kind of calmed and soothed and placated. And then I think that was the last time they ever mentioned Pope Pius IX. (laughs) Pope John XXIII went on to become a saint, along with Pope John Paul II himself. And I think Pope Paul VI is now a saint. Uh, So you've all witnessed that story just as much as I have. So Pope Pius IX, who is the hero and a champion of the Declaration of the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady in the year 1854. Also, he's the one who... Um, wrote the Syllabus of Errors and Quantacura, which show all the modern errors coming from the uh, exaggeration of the rights of man over the rights of God and all the errors that will come from that. He said, This is an error, that's an error, that's an error, and all this is to be condemned. You know, the religious liberty and um, uh, the idea that. Um, one can find his own salvation without the Catholic Church, and one can find salvation in all the, the different religions, which are the sects, uh, without the Catholic Church. It's all condemned and condemned and condemned, and he's the hero of that. And also he's the hero, Pope Pius IX, is the hero of the um, Vatican Council the first or the First Vatican Council, and most known for the Declaration on Papal Infallibility. That is Pope Pius IX, blessed Pope Pius IX. Well, when he was a child, his name was Giovanni Maria Peretti. He was an epileptic. He had epilepsy, Uh, the man who would become pope. His mother prayed very hard for a cure for him from St. Philomena, and it was granted. He no longer was an epileptic. I've never heard of that happening before. Perhaps you've all known a person with epilepsy in your life. They're not always having seizures, but when they do, you need to have medicine, you need to have doctors and all the rest of it, and that stays with them their whole life, usually. I've, this is the only case I know of someone who was epileptic and then was no longer epileptic. Uh, Pope Pius IX, when he was a boy. He grew up and he became the Archbishop of Spoleto, which is a very important uh, diocese in Italy. Uh and uh, yes, he spread the devotion of Saint Philomena while he was Archbishop of Spoleto. Then he became Archbishop of Imola. While he was archbishop there, his secretary, those, that's a, um, a canonical position, or that's a uh, ecclesiastical position. His secretary, that's not a woman, that's a priest with that assignment. Don Joseph Stella was cured by Saint Philomena because of the prayers of Pope Pius IX for him through St. Philomena. He wasn't the Pope yet. Then he himself, uh, Archbishop Giovanni Ferretti, became dangerously ill and his life was feared for. So not only the epilepsy as a child, but also as an adult, he became dangerously ill and his life was feared for. He prayed to St. Philomena for a cure, He always kept a beautiful statue of her at his bedside. That's what we're working on here, is acquiring a beautiful statue of St. Philomena. And he was miraculously cured of his dangerous infirmity. And then he became Pope, Archbishop Giovanni Maria. While he was Pope, there was a young man named Paul Mary, who was deathly ill from cholera, and had gone blind. This young man prayed very hard for for a cure and was healed on St. Philomena's feast day, August the 11th, 1849. This young man went to the shrine of St. Philomena to thank her for the cure. And that's where he promised to become a priest, at the shrine of St. Philomena. This young man got to know Pope Pius IX, and then the Pope helped him through the seminary and the young, young man did become a priest. You might remember that it was Pope Gregory XVI uh, during the life of Pauline Jericote in the year 1837. Uh, pope Gregory Sixteenth made her a saint. He canonized her solely, solely on the merit of her miracles. He didn't even need historical documentation. It was enough for him that they had the miracles and they had the tomb with her name and the instruments of her um, martyrdom. That part really uh, grabs me because it shows you how it shows us um, how weak are the arguments of those who would like to take away. Some of the biggest cults, in a good sense, huh? cults, cultus of the church. Because St. Philomena, by a very important pope, Gregory Sixteenth, was made a saint solely on her merits as a miracle worker. And then 100 years passed, we get to 1961, and she was, her name was taken off the universal calendar solely because she was only a miracle worker. <laughs> Come on. What is this? You know, today it's black and tomorrow's white, and today is this truth and tomorrow's that truth. It's completely opposing. She's made a saint in one century solely because she's a miracle worker. And for all practical purposes, she was unsainted the next century because she was solely a miracle worker. Somebody's got problems in their heads up here. Unless they're purely malicious, I wouldn't want to say that. Um, so, uh, that was what Pope Gregory Sixteenth did for her. And then Pope Pius IX, uh, during his pontificate, just after um, this young man was healed and became a priest, about 1849, he gave St. Philomena her own Mass and her own proper office in the breviary on the feast day of August the 11th. Before that time, they were celebrating her feast day, but you had to use the common of virgin martyrs, to um, pray her Mass and then he made her own intro her own own collect her own uh, reading from the epistles etc. just for her this had never been done before for a Roman martyr with no historical record Uh, but as you know she had already been canonized by Pope Gregory XVI eventually Pope Pius IX met with some difficulty he was exiled from Rome that's to say, he had to flee Rome to make sure that he was not kidnapped or held as a hostage in order to gain, in order for some worldly power to gain some worldly advantage. As had, and had, helped, as had happened with um, I, the, the Pope at the time of the finding of the relics of um, St. Philomena, about the year 1805. I forgot which Pope that was. So, The Freemasons forced Pope Pius IX out of Rome. That's after they claimed the papal states. And just to make sure they got what they got, they were going to take the pope also and say, we will keep the pope hostage until he admits, and you all admit, that the papal states belong to us. So he, in a preemptive escape, got out of Rome uh, until those Freemasons calmed down, even after they had stolen the papal states. So where did Pope Pius IX go for his exile? He went to the United Nations building. I'm just kidding. Those are the last people that will defend the papacy. <laughs> uh, Pope Pius IX lead to, uh, fled, sorry, fled to Muniano, uh, the shrine of um, St. Philomena, to spend some weeks there, or maybe even months. Uh, why did he go there for why did he go there? Because there he found refuge and consolation with his great saint. She had already saved his life or at least saved his life once and saved, and cured him from epilepsy as a child. And then he watched all the, these other miracles happening through her for the church. So he was quite um, close to her and he went there to spend some time. He celebrated the holy sacrifice of the mass at her altar. He signed his forehead with the vile, of her blood and then carried this vial personally to all the faithful that were present at the shrine so they could venerate it also. And then when kneeling before the relics of Saint Philomena, he felt an interior certainty that he would soon return to Rome much than the Vatican, much sooner than it was thought he would return. Uh, let's say, Providence made it clear to him that it was safe to return, and he did, much before it was scheduled to return, and everything went well, thanks to the saint. Pope Pius IX granted many indulgences to the pilgrims who went to visit St. Philomena's Shrine. In June of 1930, well, that's got to be way off. I must have copied a date wrong. He didn't live that long. Uh in June of 1800 and something, he introduced the cause of Pauline Jericho for beatification. And finally, just a few weeks before his death, the death of Pope Pius IX, he gave a beautiful chalice to her shrine. So that's Pope Pius IX and St. Philomena. I'd like to cover with you the other popes, Pope Leo Thirteenth and Pope Pius X, uh, next time we have class. So we continue to our... Um, study of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass in these spiritual conferences. Uh, Last week we did kind of a um, conclusion of everything that we were studying on the um, level of principles and level of um, just sort of abstract thought about what is sacrifice and what is adoration and and what is propitiation. And the conclusion was that what we we were concluding with last week was, uh, the world is a great persecutor of the church. But in the world, there are many holy people who are very attached, let's say imbued uh, uh, imbued, inspired by, transformed by the holy sacrifice of the mass. And these people, as much as they receive persecution from the world, they are always sacrificing themselves for the people in the world. While they are punished, or whatever you call it, tortured, uh, by the world, they make sacrifice. And because of that, other people from the world convert. And it is, the, it is the holy sacrifice of the Mass that makes that happen. That's the point that we kept studying last week over and over in different applications. And now we come to this study, uh, which is called the liturgical part of the holy sacrifice of the Mass. So we're going to study prayers, we're going to study gestures of the priest, perhaps gestures of the faithful, and also all the material items that are on the altar, and the altar itself. So as you know, our divine Lord instituted the sacrificial act with the Last Supper, and then he leaves that to the Holy Mother Church to choose and form a liturgy where that holy sacrifice will be made present over and over again. Uh, he first celebrated the holy sacrifice of the mass on a wooden table. Uh, that wooden table is still preserved till this day. It's been covered over, or let's say, um, put inside of a large marble box, which is a new, which is an altar, and that's in the St. John Lateran um, Basilica or the Basil- Archbasilica of Our Divine Savior in Rome. Uh, So that's what's happened with his altar. Uh, But then take, for example, the sacraments. Our Lord instituted all the sacraments. And then he leaves it to Holy Mother Church to keep repeating those sacraments. How did our Lord institute confirmation, for instance? Well, the Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles and our Blessed Mother. That filled them with the Holy Ghost, all truth. It made them understand all these things of the world in a supernatural sense. It's because the Holy Ghost is inside of them. We don't see and hear and feel a strong, violent wind in an earthquake when we receive confirmation. No. We see a bishop. He receives the faithful. He puts the holy chrism on their forehead with a formula. Um, I sign thee with the sign of the cross, and I confirm the, with the Holy Christmas of salvation in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and gives him a, a tap on the cheek or a slap on the cheek, and um, that's confirmation. How our Lord did it was, how he sent the Holy Ghost was the violent wind, but he leaves it to his church to determine how they're going to receive confirmation with the means we have, and that's through with, with the bishop. Same thing can be said with the receiving of the um, extreme unction, our Lord makes the sacrament and then He leaves it to the church. How that sacrament is going to be given to souls. When we offer the holy sacrifice, we always use what is noblest, most noble. Let's compare in the Old Testament to the sacrifice of the two sons of Adam and Eve, at least two of their sons uh, Cain, who was older, and Abel, who was younger. Abel offered a sacrifice of the best lamb or the best sheep from his fold, from his flock. Abel was a man of, sorry, Cain, his brother, was a man of agriculture. And he offered vegetables, which is still all right. But he offered to God vegetables which were second class, after he already took the best for himself, or for sale or whatever, for selling or whatever the thing was, was. God was happy with the sacrifice of Abel and he was not happy with the sacrifice of Cain. And that came to rivalry between the brothers and Cain smote his brother Abel. Does God need lambs and does God need sheep? No. What he does need or what he does want is the sacrifice of what is most precious to us. He wants us to give up what is most precious to us and say, this belongs to you because you're greater than I am. And so when we use uh, gold and silver and precious jewels on the altar or for the monstrance or whatever it is, that's not because gold is precious to God. He doesn't need our gold or our silver or our jewels. But what he does need what he does ask for from us is to give him the best of what we materially have. And that's the way we say to him that you are better than we are. You are higher than we are. That's why I give up what is best in this world for you. God does not need our gold, but what God does want is our contrite heart and our our, uh, humble heart, which is expressed by giving up what would be best materially for us in this world to say, no, 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 this is for you. You are higher than we are. You get the best. That's why we must adorn the altar with great reverence to show the presence of God. Our Lord, during his lifetime, excuse me, the altar represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. During the lifetime of our divine Lord, he allowed for his body to be honored Think of the occasion when Mary Magdalene anointed the feet of our Lord with right spikenard, a very expensive, perfumey ointment. And Judas became indignant, and he said, we should have sold that, or whatever the price was, 100 denarii, something like that, and given the money to the poor. Our Lord said, what she has done will never be taken away from her. She has done this in regard to my burial, this should be never this never should be taken away from her. Some have accused the church of spending all those funds on uh, material wealth for making big beautiful churches and altars and vestments and sacred vessels, chalice and Saboria and so forth. This could have been given to the poor, same argument as Judas. and the answer is, you've probably found this in your own life, Uh, the amount that you're generous with the poor is always compensated for by the amount that God is generous with you. Or the amount that you're generous with God is compensated for how much that God is generous with you as well. So we get this idea that The church um, is generous with the poor and that's why she continues to be blessed in providing the the, the best things for God. If she were to stop providing the best things for God, she wouldn't have the funds to provide things for the poor as well. Please take the example of St. Lawrence from the the year 250. You know that he was the deacon of Rome, and he was given the charge of the Bank of Rome uh, for the Christians. And he had an even distribution of what was used for the church and what was used for the poor. He was um, confronted by the governor of that time to say, turn over the riches of the church. And he, instead of turning over everything that was invested in whatever crucifixes, chalices, uh, statues they might have had at that time, I don't think they had very much of it, because they were still worshiping in the catacombs. What they had materially was not so precious to um, the Caesars and the governors, etc. So he simply handed over to the governor the poor people and said, you want our riches? Here they are. This is where we've invested our riches. He would have been speaking about prayers. He would have been speaking about time spent on the poor people and charity and also the funds, the material funds given to those people. But we should have, uh, from St. Lawrence, we should have this lesson as, if we are generous to God in the wealth, spiritual and material, that we give to the church, there will always be wealth for the poor. If we stopped giving to God all of a sudden, we're not going to have it for the poor, also. It seems um, kind of in style nowadays, and hopefully, we'll get to it. We'll see. We'll see what has been lost in the Novus Ordo Mass. Different things that should be on the altar, and the altar should be made of, etc. But it seems that it's. Um, the uh, very much in style these days at least for about the last 50 years now to say our lord was simple saint francis was simple and by all this material wealth on the altar we are blurring our vision of god we've got to get back to simplicity so that we can see god so what ends up happening beautiful gold chalice out the window same with the ciborium same with the candlesticks the same with the altar itself and we're left with something wooden, looking quite simple in the neg- in the pejorative sense. Chalices that are not even made out of precious metals anymore. Candles that aren't candles, they're just sort of a blob of wax on the altar. And just very, um, I would say, non-uplifting things, mundane of... Boring, trite, just unfortunate things in sanctuaries nowadays. What is going on? Well, this leaves man, or this leaves the Christians, Catholics, who come to church, uh, without anything to lift them up. You know, it's a very important quality of the Catholic Church, something called transcendence. And that's not just a word used by modernists. That's been a word used all along. They've changed what they mean by it, it. but transcendence means to pull us out of this world. We know we have to go to work and college and we've got to make money and take care of the family and drive a car and buy gasoline for it. We know we've got to do all those things. But when I go to church, I leave that world behind for just about an hour, maybe two hours, to be in the mysteries of, of our Lord Jesus Christ in, in the sacrifice and with all the reverence and all the glory and adoration that that sacrifice deserves. And that fills my soul up. That, that's transcendent. It takes me out of this world, puts me in the supernatural world. And then when I leave church I'm refreshed and I can face these mundane and trite and boring things again with the supernatural spirit that lets me see God working through those things for my sanctification. But if I just come to church and find th- find things here less elegant than a restaurant or even less elegant than my own house sometimes, keep that in mind too, huh? The people who complain about things being too uh, rich and wealthy upon the altar uh, kind of have nice homes, uh, despite what they say about the Catholic Church. Uh If I come to the church and I find just boring and trite things here and I don't transcend in any way, then I leave the church tired and just as exhausted as when I came in with no spirit of transforming the world outside of here because I didn't go through any kind of transforming experience inside the church. I had the occasion a few times within the last couple of years to be around while Novus Ordo masses were going on in big Latin parishes in Nicaragua. We had a deal there. Uh, when they were finished with their mass, we were able to use the church for the true mass. And we had our 40 or 50 people, whatever it was, that was kind of nice. But they filled the church with their three or 400 people, and my goodness, it's just music all mass long and microphones and loud, you know, just loud. Not a moment of peace, not a moment of recollection, not a moment of transcendence. And I think that's the effect they're going for, which is unfortunate, because it leaves a Catholic without any kind of um, uh, transforming influence on the world outside after going through that kind of, I would say, worldly atmosphere, which is supposed to be Holy Mass. If one loves the sanctuary of God, he will necessarily love neighbor more and be generous with neighbor. If we give God his place, the good place, our behavior towards our neighbor will improve. The items which are used for Holy Mass must be withdrawn from the world and withdrawn from profane use, therefore, the uh, altar cloths, the linens that are used in the chalice, the cruets, the candles, candlesticks, the crucifix, everything you see is blessed—at least blessed. The chalice is consecrated. Chalice and paten that's used on the whole, on the chalice are consecrated by a bishop. Only a bishop can consecrate those. These things must be taken out of profane use and dedicated only to the use of God. We don't leave a chalice lying around the house. On the contrary, the chalice is always either on the altar or in the sacristy. And usually, when it's in the sacristy, it's in the cupboards. Why? Because it's something sacred, it must stay veiled. It's not normal to have a chalice unveiled around while we just have a normal worldly conversation. That's not correct. It's something holy. In the Old Testament, they had to pass through three different sort of cells to get to the presence of God, which was the Ten Commandments and the um, staff of Aaron and a little bit of manna. Those are symbols of God. The chalice touches God. God becomes present in the chalice. So of course we don't treat it in a common and mundane way it's veiled out of respect nothing is insignificant in the holy mass whether that's called you know what's on the altar the altar itself the priest and the way he behaves at the altar his gestures nothing is without its meaning every gesture every bow every kiss of the altar every genuflection has its purpose There must be about 20 genuflections that a priest does in every Mass. Every time that the priest uh, touches the sacred host when it's been consecrated, he doesn't touch the host without first genuflecting. And when he's done touching the host, he genuflects again. And there's no touching of the host without genuflections. Speaking of genuflections, uh, it has been known in the past that just a genuflection well-made is enough to convert a person looking on at the Mass without being a Catholic or having been a a Catholic that was separated from practicing the faith for a lot of years, just to see a genuflection, not even by the priest, but by a layman, well made in the church. That's enough to convert a soul. It's been said by Protestants before, I hear that you Catholics believe that that host up there is Jesus. Well, yes, of course I do. And the Protestant is known to say, well, hey, if I believed that, I would never be on my feet in the church. I would only crawl in the, the, what do you call it, the center aisle to get up to the altar to receive him, if I really believed it. I'm surprised you you Catholics behave so casually in church, was the comment. I mean, that kind of puts us in our place, I understand, and that's the way we should take it. Uh, But I don't know if that Protestant who said that ever converted either. (laughs) Uh, There we are. Mass. The Holy Mass must always be offered in a sacred place. There must always be a consecrated altar stone, at least for the Holy Mass. Mass may never be offered without an altar. Keep that in mind, Novus Ordo priests who like to celebrate Mass at a dining room table. where there is no sacrifice, there is no altar. So those who might try from the Novus Ordo to have a um, some sort of ceremony without an altar, you could say to them, don't worry, there's no sacrifice here anyway. <laughs> so we must aim for having a consecrated church and a consecrated altar. Kind of hard to do. I know that this a parish. I have no problem calling you all a parish. I'm called pastor, so that means it must be a parish. Uh, you as a parish started out years ago, probably in hotel rooms, and eventually people's houses, or maybe started the other way around, people's houses. And then you had the um, the uh, apartment, or more than apartment, it is the rented space in Killinny Drive, Killany Road, and now you're here. I would guess that those were not consecrated churches, I mean, nor even consecrated altars, I don't think. But here we are, and I've seen pictures. Um, Bishop Tissi de Malaret did the consecration of your altar. That's beautiful. And he probably blessed the church, but didn't, didn't consecrate it, uh, because in order to have a consecrated church, it needs to stand on 12 stone pillars, 12 representing the apostles. And some churches are built that way. They have 12 pillars. I'm not totally convinced that they're holding up all the way to the church, but at least they have their 12 pillars, and that's their 12 apostles represented. And therefore, they can have a consecration of the church. Not just a blessing, but a consecration. And then to have a consecrated altar, the altar needs to be of stone, like this one. I think I've already talked about this in some other class, how it has a five crosses Traced out, or carved out on the on this table surface, which is called the Mensa. And in the very center, there's actually what they, call, what they call a sepulcher, which contains three relics of at least two martyrs and one other saint with certificates and the um, seal of the bishop. That's very hard to get to that point to get all these things taken care of. But normally, and in the best scenario, that's the way it should be a consecrated church with a consecrated altar. And the consecration of the altar is the most splendid uh, blessing ceremony that exists in the church. And let me do a little quote um, about how that has devolved in the Novus Ordo. must be a consecrated altar and a consecrated church. This is talking about the Novus Ordo um, church. The practice of mass facing the people was the most striking of the post-Vatican II innovations affecting the altar, but it was not the only one. Some were obvious. Altars that looked like butcher blocks, salad bars, meteorites, giant anvils or copies of Rubik's Cube. That's how they newer altars look and just a moment all right i guess that's all i have to say about what's happened to the altars so i told you that the altar that our lord used was a wooden table which is still preserved and made into an altar now and then from the time of the apostles stone became the norm for altars Something that uh, moved this along, I think I've told this, told you this before, was a lot of the worship. Most of the worship of early Christians was in the underground burial uh, grounds of the Christians, which is the catacombs. So it was very convenient to start celebrating mass upon the tombs of the saints and the martyrs, which were above ground, underground, <laughs> underground burial place. But the, you could, the, the 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 tomb itself was not buried when they were underground with it and they celebrated mass upon that and that became the norm to have a stone altar and so now we have a stone altar we try to have stone altars in our churches and this is what is called an immovable altar as opposed to the portable altar which would be made of wood even though it's big and got all kind of decorations and weighs a couple tons it's called a portable altar because the wood itself is not the altar. What really is the altar in a wooden altar is the very center where you'll find a stone, or ara, um, ara, ara altaris, no, ara, I can't, can't think of the other word, but it means altar in Latin, and uh, it's made of stone. Inside of that stone, just like this altar here, are three relics, uh, two of a martyr, two of, one of a non martyr, and uh, with their certificates and sealed by a bishop. Speaking about the altar, it is good if it's elevated, like this altar here, because the altar symbolizes our Lord Jesus Christ, who is in triumph with his Father in heaven, showing his wounds of his victory to his Father. We look up to Christ on the altar. In heaven, and so therefore we look up to Christ on the altar. It is good if the altar can be facing east. I kind of lose concept of what is east out here. I don't have enough. There are not enough windows in the building. Uh, The reason that we we try to make altars face east is because our Lord is the Sun, S U N, Son of Justice, and our Lord is the Great Orient, meaning that. Everything should be directed towards him. He's the rising of the sun and he is the um, center of orientation. It is good if both the altar and the church can be consecrated together. And why is that? Because the church, the nave, represents the mystical body and the faithful of our Lord Jesus Christ. The altar represents our Lord Jesus Christ himself. By doing both ceremonies one after the other or on the same occasion, we're showing this union of the mystical body with our Lord Jesus Christ. The martyrs' bodies are enclosed in the altar. They reign in triumph with our Lord Jesus Christ. St. John the Apostle saw under the altar in the Apocalypse, he saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God. Therefore, the mortal remains of the saints are more valuable than gold and precious stones. I ran into this question just about a week ago with someone. I think the person was heckling me and just probably having a little fun, so I didn't take it too seriously, but I tried to answer well. Uh, The person was saying, um, Why do you place so much importance on where Catholics are buried? Uh, and why do you think so much about people coming to visit your grave after your death to pray for you? The person said to me, there's no soul in that body anymore. Why go to someone's grave to pray for them? It's just as good if you bury them anywhere that you're not going to visit them because you're really not visiting them when they're dead. Uh, And I responded by saying, you know, we have these relics on the altar, and we have veneration of relics and so forth. Why is that? Because those relics belong to saints, and their bodies were the house of God, the temples of the Holy Ghost. Their bodies were transformed by the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ in them, and therefore we venerate them. That's a canonized saint. But really, all of us, and St. Paul actually does this, he calls the Christians saints. He would call us saints. You have our Lord Jesus Christ dwelling in you. You're the temple of the Holy Ghost. Maybe we're not going to be canonized after our deaths, but it's very, likely, very possible that we'll go to heaven. So that body, which was so long a temple of the Holy Ghost, deserves veneration, even if we're not canonized. And just by, you know, when we have a relic of a saint near us, we have a certain closeness, proximity to that saint by having the relic with us. And we venerate it that saint intercedes for us because we're venerating their relic. So maybe a person is not a canonized saint, but still to be near their body is to somehow be near them. And they're interceding for us if they're in heaven, or we're meriting for them by praying for them at their site in the uh, cemetery. And, of course, that would bring up the uh, consequential subject of... um, Cremation. Catholics have never cremated their dead. And why is that? For the same reason I just gave. That would be a great disrespect on our part to destroy, to change into ashes uh, a body which was just the temple of the Holy Ghost. So it's very pagan to uh, cremate a body. Catholics have never done it. I'm speaking universally. There might be some countries where even the Catholics did it for some extreme reason, but that's not the general practice of the church. Let me compare that about uh, relics in the altar necessarily to uh, what has happened. Well, first of all, I think I missed one there. Uh, I was talking about altars made of stone, and what has happened with that with the Novus Ordo since the general instruction of 1969. Uh, The general instruction paid lip service to the sanctioned tradition and said the table of the altar should be made of stone, but the very next sentence added that bishops' conferences can improve the use of other materials. They must be solid, becoming, and well-crafted materials. So, with 15 words, the innovators demolished a tradition which went back at least 1600 years of altars made of stone. And now, what about relics? Church law maintained this tradition of relics in the altar until the advent of the new Mass. Enclosing the relics of martyrs in the altar is no longer required. The diocesan bishop decides the suitability of retaining the practice by considering the spiritual good of the community, whatever that means. Let me just study this, pretending that one is a bishop of the diocese in the modern church. I consider that it is for the spiritual good of our church that there are relics in the altar. That sounds nice. Or I consider that it's not for the spiritual good of our community that there be relics in the altar. How does one argument compared, have any weight compared to the argue, other argument? How can I possibly argue that it would be against the spiritual good of our church to have relics in the altar? There's no, It's not even possible. And then they, let's see, they made it even more impossible. As a further obstacle to observing this tradition of relics in the altar, the new legislation states that relics placed in the altar must be large enough to be recognized, to be recognizable as parts of the human body, so it has to look like a little has to be evidently a chunk of bone, uh, or evidently a piece of dust from the human body, or evidently um, coagulates of blood from the human body. How are you going to find relics that look that big, that are that big? How are you going to bury those relics in the center of your altar? And you know, by the time they put all, those, all these rules on it. I don't think it's suitable to have relics in the altar, or there must be an evidently, uh, obviously large, piece, large enough piece of bone to call it bone, in the altar to have relics. What's going to happen effectively as a result of all this? Since it is difficult enough to obtain even a small relic from a martyr's bones, the rule in effect abolishes the traditional practice of having relics, relics in the altar. Uh, moreover, it is now forbidden to place relics in the tabletop or the mensa of the altar, and this practice, practice dates back at least to the eighth century. I didn't tell you, but in a marble altar, as we have here, the whole tabletop, which is called mensa, must be of one only of only one piece of stone. It cannot be several pieces connected. So that's um, that's important because there we are. It is our Lord Jesus Christ. It represents our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ is not broken. Therefore, it's one big piece. So relics have been effectively um, uh, overturned, unfortunately. My brother, Father Kenneth, is a real, um, he's a priest of the society, and he's a real crusader, I guess you call it. And he loves to get boys on... um, crusades, get them all enthused like he is. So I don't know what his occasion was or where, why, or when, Uh, but he was uh, in an airport with a group of young boys from a summer camp or something like that. There must have been 10 or 20 of them, and they visited the uh, local, uh, they visited the uh, multi-religious church or chapel in the airport. And they found there an altar, and they found the altar stone, and um, I think he got a little crusade with those boys to get that altar stone and take it to one of our churches. I don't normally advocate that sort of thing. Uh, he must have assumed they weren't using that altar anymore for a Catholic purpose. And therefore they uh, acquired a, a, an altar stone. Uh, that's not normally what we do, but some are known for doing those sort of things. Uh, I guess his argument, his reasoning would have been that altar stones are no longer required in the new mass. Relics that you just heard about are no longer required in the new mass. So um, that's what happened on that occasion. I won't go on that much longer because some of these things start to sound the same after a while. I'll talk about the... um, um, Speaking about the stones and the stone altar, our Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the chief cornerstone. St. Paul speaks of him. So it makes sense that that the altar will be of stone. Those who assist at Mass, those who are the faithful, they are the spiritual temple which grows up to eternal salvation. They are the living stones. From the wounds of our divine Lord flows the saving ointment of all graces. Very good. So I'll move on now to the dressing of the altar and the decoration of the altar. You've probably noticed that the altar has altar cloths on it, and there are three of them. The altar is covered with a mantle of gladness and thus it is crowned. Only things necessary for the Mass are permitted on the altar. It's not permitted to have loose sheets of paper, no extra books, no photographs of families. The altar is not a place of storage, the altar is only a place of sacrifice. There are three linen cloths on the altar. Why three? First of all, there's the practical reason. In case, uh, during the Mass, the precious blood should spill. If it does spill, it will be absorbed by all these cloths we have on the altar, rather than going to the stone, getting into the stone, and then we won't be able to pull it out easily. Believe it or not, stone, stone is a little bit porous. If you have a stone table like granite and you have something spill on it and you don't wipe it up, you'll notice a few hours later that that part of the stone is a darker color than the other part of the stone. Stone is porous. So we don't want the precious blood of our Lord seeping into the stone. Also, uh, three cloths are used to symbolize our Lord wrapped in the holy shroud. When our Lord was in the shroud, the um, cloth went over his body on the front side, went behind his body on the reverse side, and overlapped again to a certain degree on the front side. So uh, the holy shroud covered our Lord in three. And also, um, this represents we are us, the faithful who surround our Lord. I like how this study is constantly bringing out the point that we are important for our divine Lord. I know that we're just miserable sinners, but we are converted by our Lord Jesus Christ to grace through baptism. And he worked his whole life long, and it culminated with his death on the cross, to win us and to put his life into us. It is his greatest delight As man, the human nature, it is his greatest delight to be with us. And when he makes saints out of us, we're something like his greatest trophy that he presents to his Father. Now, I don't mean to make this kind of thinking, make us into something presumptuous and say, you know, what a great thing am I for our Lord Jesus Christ, without doing any kind of prayer and sacrifice and penance. But it is noteworthy that quite a few of the things that are significant on the altar have to do with How glorious are the saints that follow our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ died for humanity and we, his redeemed Christians, are very valuable to him. And so the three cloths on the altar represent us, the faithful, who surround our divine Lord. We are his precious garments. He is clothed with beauty. St. John says in the Apocalypse that the golden girdle which he sees around the person that looks like our Lord, this signifies the hosts of the saints. Also, the three altar cloths on the altar symbolize the three branches of the mystical body, the church militant, the church suffering, and the church triumphant. And only the whitest linen is used because it shows cleanness of heart. Just as during the Holy Mass, only the whitest hosts are used. I remember the Archbishop talking in his book, uh, Letter to Confused Catholics. Why do they use whole wheat hosts at the new Mass? It's because they want to get away from this idea of the spotless victim. Our Lord Jesus Christ is pure and white and clean and spotless. He, that's why the hosts are white. Same with the altar cloths. They're white and they're linen. Linen is one of the purest... Um, fibers we have for cleanliness and for um, just how white you can keep it. Whitest linen because it shows cleanness of heart, which can only be acquired by constant and laborious prayer, watching, and mortification. Cleanness of heart, as precious linen is prepared with much labor. So, keeping the state of grace is hard work. It means confession, it means rosary, it means the holy sacrifice of the Mass. All of us might think, well, the Ten Commandments, I mean, I would never go completely against just one or the other of them, that that'd be horrible. Well, maybe, but still, there are many mortal sins that can happen uh, if we're not practicing sacrifice and not receiving the sacraments and not being present in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Um, There's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, and there's no salvation without penance. That means if we don't do penance, we are gonna violate the Ten Commandments. The three cloths, this is kind of a practical level now, uh, the first two that are on the altar only have to cover the table surface or the mensa. They don't have to reach down the sides. But the one which is on top and the one which is usually decorated, that one should reach down to both sides to the floor. And the reason for that is they are part of the altar. As the altar itself touches the floor, that top altar cloth, which is part of the altar, must touch the floor also. Uh, And let me just see if I can compare that with what's done now. The traditional rubrics, rubric means, um, let's say laws about the material things. The traditional rubrics prescribe three blessed linen cloths for the top of the altar. Out of reverence for the precious blood, should it be spilled by accident during the course of mass. It is easy easy to understand why the rubrics prescribe linen. The altar symbolically represents Christ and all four gospels recount that his body, his body was wrapped in linen. The general instruction of the Novus Ordo, on the other hand, required only one cloth, made no, mention, made no mention of the use of linen, and did not require that the cloth be blessed. There it is. So whatever they can do to um, make the liturgy less transcendent and more mundane, mundane doesn't just mean boring. Mundane also comes to the word mundus, which means world. So whatever they can do to make, make the less, less transcendent and more worldly, they will do. And they tell us that they do that because they don't want to leave, to leave people out in the cold with the impression that mass is just for an elite uh, who only have uh, rich clothing and, and uh, can buy rich vestments. Mass is for everyone. Jesus didn't turn down anyone That's the impression they like to give. But that's a lot of words. What they really mean to say is, what they really mean is our Lord Jesus Christ is not going to get the reverence and adoration he used to get. And by taking that away from him, you all are going to be a lot less sanctified. That's what's going on there. Then they put some um, malicious words on the thing, maliciously deceptive words on the thing to say, Well, this is the way it should have always been. People feeling more welcome to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. And uh, I don't know if they do feel more welcome. They feel more exhausted when Mass is finished. They don't feel uplifted. They don't feel transformed. And all this transformation happens because of the reverence we give to our Lord Jesus Christ, first of all. So we'll continue from there next week, talking about different items of the altar, which need to be observed. And we'll close with a prayer.